standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. I'd like to welcome everyone tonight that has made it out for the meeting. And tonight we're going to be talking about Islam, Israel, and America and Bible prophecy. So it's a very exciting topic. I've been looking into these things for at least the past five years. But I've been interested in prophecy ever since I was a young boy. I remember telling my dad when I was little I wanted to understand the book of Revelation. And so the Lord Jesus has been faithful to honor that request. Um, of course, over the years, I've been down many roads in exploring prophecy, but have finally come to see that the literal historical method of Bible interpretation is a method that opens the Word of God to not only one or two individuals, but to all individuals that will look therein. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go back in time, so to speak, back to a time when these methods were being used of Bible interpretation. They were commonly understood. People by the thousands were learning these things. And so I'm hoping that you'll be blessed this evening. But before I do this, I'd like to open with prayer. And I'm going to kneel, and those of you that can kneel with me. Father, I just come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, I just solicit the throne of grace. I just ask that you'd use me to be a blessing, not because of any worthiness that's in myself, but because I desire to bless those that listen to this. I thank you for those that have been able to be here tonight. I ask that you would just open up our understanding from your word. You have promised where two or more are gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst. So we claim that promise now, and we thank you for your great goodness to us. And I pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So how shall we consider prophecy? What does it mean to us? Well, the Bible will supply an answer, and we're going to have a theme for the next five nights together. And our theme is going to be taken from Proverbs 27, Proverbs 27, verse 12. We read, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. We could read that in this way, A wise man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the foolish pass on and are punished. You see, it is natural for man to see evil in our world, disorder and decay everywhere, and to ask, how long will it continue? When will it end? But we need to be prepared. And if the Bible is true, would it be unreasonable for God to not give revelation, to not leave us uninformed, or to leave us uninformed? We need to know these things. We need to understand these things. And we are told... In the book of Amos, in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So prophecy is given to the world to forewarn it and give it time to prepare. And we should be confident that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord and the coming of the Son of Man, something will be known about it. Now, some of you might be familiar with this text in Matthew chapter 24. A lot of people know this. When Jesus was on the Mount of Olives speaking to his disciples, in Matthew 24, I'd like to go there. We're going to look in verse 1 of Matthew 24. It tells us, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another, they shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, 
And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus goes on to talk about how that there will be wars and rumors of wars, that there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes, all sorts of things that will be taking place. And yet, these things must needs be. But then he goes on to tell us in verse 15, if we really want to understand the three questions that are asked by the disciples, the destruction of the temple, of course, that has already taken place in 70 A.D., now we're looking for the sign of his coming and the end of the world. And he says in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. So if we're going to understand these things, we're admonished that we must go to the book of Daniel. They go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that are revealed in the word of God that belong specifically to God's people. They are revealed to us for a reason. Prophecy in the Bible is denominated as revelation, and it is designed to reveal things to us that we could never know otherwise. And we must keep this in mind these next five nights as we go over these things that we're going to hit the high points. In an hour, we're going to have to make broad strokes because we can't really get into the minute details of what we're going to look at. But we can get enough of an understanding by making broad strokes that we can see the forest and get an idea that we have to be very close to the return of Jesus Christ. If you go with me to Daniel chapter 12, looking in verse 10, we are told, Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And in keeping with our theme, we are told that a prudent man or a wise man foreseeth the evil that cometh to pass, but the simple or the foolish pass on and are punished. The wise are going to understand these things. And how are we going to be wise? Well, some of us may lack wisdom. Some of us may not understand these things. We've never heard these things before. But we are told, we're given a promise in James chapter 1. People turn with me there to James chapter 1. There's a promise for us. It says here in verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. That's a promise. If we want wisdom, then we are promised that if we are humble and teachable, we will be able to learn through the medium of God's word. Prophecy can be and will be understood by those who want to know. Now, before we're going to go any further, we have some rules that we need to work from. Rules that are taken from the Bible, rules that make sense if we're going to look in the Word of God, rules that were used by those that have studied in the past, rules that were used in the Protestant Reformation that have advanced all biblical light. Our first rule, every word must have its proper bearing on the subject presented in the Bible. That's number one. Number two, all scripture is necessary and may be understood by diligent application and study. Rule number three is nothing revealed in the scripture can or will be hid from those who ask in faith, not wavering. Precious promise. Rule number four is to understand doctrine, bring all the scriptures together on the subject you wish to know, then let every word have its proper influence. And if you can form your theory without a contradiction, you cannot be in error. Rule number five is scripture must be its own expositor since it is a rule of itself. If I depend on a teacher to expound it to me, 
and he should guess at its meaning or desire to have it so on account of his secretary and creed or to be thought wise, then his guessing, desire, creed, or wisdom is my rule, not the Bible. Number six, figures always have a figurative meaning and are used much in prophecy to represent future things, times, and events, such as mountains, meaning governments, beasts, meaning kingdoms, waters, meaning people, lamps, meaning the word of God, day, meaning year. Rule number seven, figures sometimes have two or more different significations. As day is used in a figurative sense to represent three different periods of time, indefinite, definite, a day for a year, day for a thousand years. If you put on the right construction, it will harmonize with the Bible and make good sense. Otherwise, it will not. Rule number eight, how to know when a word is used figuratively. If it makes good sense as it stands and does no violence to the simple laws of nature, then it must be understood literally, if not figuratively. And this is one of the most important rules that we will use in this study. When we see most words that are used in Bible prophecy, we are going to understand that by and large they are figurative. They are not literal. Why are they not literal? Because to see those things in reality would to do violence to the laws of nature. And this will make more sense as we continue. Now, rule number nine, to learn the true meaning of figures, trace your figurative word through your Bible and where you find it explained, put it on your figure. And if it makes good sense, you need look no further. If not, look again. And then our last rule, rule number 10, to know whether we have the true historical event for the fulfillment of a prophecy. If you find every word of the prophecy after the figures are understood is literally fulfilled, then you may know that your history is the true event. And this is another very significant understanding of prophecy. We look for history. Prophecy is merely history foretold in advance. But if one word lacks a fulfillment, then you must look for another event or wait for its future development. For God takes care that history and prophecy doth agree so that the true believing children of God may never be ashamed. And to me, that is a precious promise. We do not have to be ashamed. We can understand these things. Today, with every wind of doctrine that's blowing and all kinds of ideas that are out there, many private, spiritualized interpretations that are causing confusion, God does not want his people to be ashamed. Those that are looking to his word to understand these things. So then, these rules will be our foundation. We must let the Bible interpret itself to be its own expositor. Now, how do we do that? Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go to Revelation chapter 12, and let's look at some figurative language right here in Revelation chapter 12, and we'll see clearly it has to be a figure. In verse 1 it says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, has anyone ever seen a woman in the world with the sun clothing her, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. No, so we automatically begin to know that we must be dealing with a figure. Because in verse 2 it says, And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And then it tells us in verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, 
and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Who is this woman? Because we are definitely dealing with a figure here. Now, we can also understand from this passage that we have to be also talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But who is the woman? Well, based on looking to the Bible for our definitions, we can find that if we go to Jeremiah chapter 6. In Jeremiah chapter 6, we are told what is a woman in Bible prophecy. Jeremiah 6, verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. Zion being the church of God. So a woman in Bible prophecy is equal to a church. And here we see in Revelation 12, we must be dealing with a pure church, a church that would bring forth the man-child, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. We do not pretend to be able to predict the hour and day of Christ's coming, but there are signs foretold that show when the great day is at hand. So if we go to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, verse 33, Jesus tells us, So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the door. What things? Things that we find in the scriptures, historical events leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. When we see those things, then we can know that it is near even at the doors. So let's keep going forward here because we are promised that this day will not overtake us. If you go with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, we read, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So we can understand some things. Now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a look at this chart and consider it. I have an original chart from the 1800s. And... This chart was used by Bible prophecy students that were studying from a literal and historical method. They were using the same rules that we just read, these same ten rules. And they came to some very profound and interesting conclusions. On this chart, the illustrations are the words of the prophets of Daniel and John, but they are done in another form. The figures described in the Bible as accurately and minutely as language can. But on the chart, they are done in symbolic form. And God inspired the prophets to write about them. As I said, the chart that I have over here is an original from the 1800s. And I have a, that one is a replica of the one that I have up here on the screen. But they basically are one and the same as you look at the images that are on them. So, they understood this chart from a certain perspective then. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a look at how they understood it and see if not only did it have relevance to them then, but would it have relevance for us today? Can we see today how it's applicable even more so than ever before? Because they really believed that they were very close, as you will notice on the chart, the return of Jesus Christ. Are we closer now than we ever have been? Now, they used a method, a method that I've already mentioned, a literal and historical method. In other words, when the Bible could be taken literally, they took it as such, unless it was obvious that it was a figure because it would do violence to the laws of nature if it was perceived any other way. It could not be taken literally. But they also used a historical understanding. Now, why do I say that? Now, I didn't put it in the slide, but 
I would like to go to Revelation 1.1 and call your attention to something here. In verse 1 it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. But the thing I want you to pick up on here in verse 1 is things which must shortly come to pass. John is writing this in the early ADs. And he is shortly after, well, not too long after the death and ascension of Jesus Christ, he's on the Isle of Patmos. He's an old man now. But he's being told that things must shortly come to pass. So if I tell you something is coming shortly, then that means then it would begin following then. Today, many people have tried to take the book of Revelation and put it off into the future. But that does violence to what the book of Revelation says. It says things which must shortly come to pass. And so that, for that very reason, for the next five nights, let's look and see if the historical methodology that they used really does make sense and opens up the word of God to us. I guess you'll have to decide by weight of evidence because that is the way we must balance everything in the word of God. We take it by weight of evidence. Now, I'd like to go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as we're laying a foundation here for our time together. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, we read, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But what I'd like to focus on is the verse part of this verse. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. These things are to be reasonably understood. Not way off in la-la land somewhere, but something that we can reason from God's word. Something that we can make sense of. So, as we go back to the chart, what we're going to do is we're going to start, excuse me, we're going to start on the right-hand side of this chart. We're going to look at these angels here and these horse powers, these men riding on horses. What did they understand about this? What was the significance of this? And we're going to use the chart like an atlas would be used to teach geography. And we're going to open the Bible and look at these symbols and consider God's revelation to man. And so as we consider this far right side, we see four angels. We see an angel up here at the very top. And this angel is crying, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then under it are other angels, three other angels. And each angel is a woe angel. What does this mean to us? Well, as we follow these things, we're going to see that these symbols point us to Islam. Because these horsemen, these riders, representing different aspects and attitudes of these horsemen. The prophetic import. Where do we see this angel, this first angel right here crying, whoa, whoa, whoa? Well, go with me to Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, whoa, 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 to the inhabitants of earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So then, we're now looking for these three angels on the chart as they understood they were going to sound. The horsepower that we deal with now, starting in verse 1 of 9, 
on the chart, and if you look at the chart that I have, the original, the word is Saracene. Now, it's not on the one up here on the uh, PowerPoint presentation, but it is known on other charts as a Saracene. Now, what is a Saracene? Well, let me give you the definition. It says, Saracene was a term widely used among Christian writers in Europe during the Middle Ages to refer to Arabs and Muslims. The term's meaning evolved during its history. In the early centuries of the Common Era, Greek and Latin writings used this term to refer to the people who lived in the desert areas in and near the Roman province of Arabia Petraea and in Arabia Deserta. In Europe during the early Middle Ages, the term came to be associated with the tribe of Arabia. By the 12th century, Saracene had become synonymous with Muslim in medieval Latin and literature. So we see then that these Bible students in the 1800s were associating Islam with Bible prophecy. So now let's go to Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, and begin to read about this first woe, this horsepower on the chart. It says, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. And to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and upon them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months. And their torment was the torment of a scorpion when he striketh the man. And in those days shall men seek death and, it shall not, and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And the power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now, it is pretty obvious, verses 1 to 11, is figurative language. Lots of figurative language. But the main takeaway in these 11 verses is the word locust. We need to follow that out and understand what that figure represents. Are we talking about real locusts? Well, the reality of it is, is we can't be talking about real locusts. And I call your attention again to our 10 rules of interpretation. Rule number six, figures always have a figurative meaning and are used much in prophecy to represent future things, times, and events. And then number eight, if a word makes good sense as it stands and does no violence to the simple laws of nature, then it must be understood literally. If not, figuratively. Well, obviously, many things we have just read in these 11 verses would do violence to the laws of nature. Who has ever seen a locust with hair like a woman, a face like a man, sting of a scorpion? We are dealing in figurative language. And in rule number nine, to learn the true meaning of the figures, trace your figurative word through your Bible, and where you find it explained, put it on your figure, 
And if it makes good sense, you need look no further. If not, look again. So what we have to do then, based on our rules, is let's trace it through the Bible. Because we can't guess at the meaning of this power. And as I said earlier, we don't have time to hit every single word in these 11 verses or in anything that we're dealing with over the next five nights because we could spend, we could spend five nights just on these 11 verses. So we want to hit the high marks. So we see in verse 4 of Revelation 9, and it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. This is what the locusts are going to affect. Now, what group of people are likened unto locusts in the Bible? Because these cannot be real locusts. Remember, if we see it used figuratively, then we know that we're dealing with a figure because it does violence to the laws of nature. So go with me now to Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10, and we see where locusts appear in the scriptures. And it has to do with the 10 plagues, the plagues that fell upon Egypt. And one of those plagues was a plague of locusts. In verse 14, we read, And the locusts went up over the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts, as they neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. So here our real locusts, our literal locusts, they eat every green thing as locusts will do. But the locusts that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, they don't eat every green thing. They're actually told not to eat green things. They're told to smite those that do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. So we have to know then, at this point, that we really are dealing with figures. Now, another clue that we're dealing with a figure can be found in Judges. If you go with me to the book of Judges, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. We're defining our figure. In Judges 6, verse 1, it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens, which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So the children of Israel have done evil in the sight of the Lord, and now they're being tormented by these Midianites. These Midianites have actually scared them, terrorized them into caves. And in verse 3 it says, And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. That's significant there, the children of the east. And in verse 4 it says, And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till they all come unto Gaza, and left no substance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. For, says in verse 5, for they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. Now this has been interpreted also as locusts, because a grasshopper and a locust in the Bible are basically one and the same. So they came up like locusts for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried 
unto the Lord. These grasshoppers and locusts are parallel to the Midianites or the children of the east. So who are these Midianites that came up like locusts against the children of Israel? Well, if we go to Judges 8, we begin to get our answer. In Judges 8, verse 21, remember, we're just following our rules. If we want to know what a figure is, we begin to trace it down through the Bible, and we see if we find a proper application. And if we find that application, then we know we have figured out what our figure is. So in verse 21, it tells us, Then Zebulah and Zalamua said, Rise thou and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Zebulah and Zalamua, and took away the ornaments that were on the cam their camels' necks. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy sons also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey. Now what were these earrings, these ornaments that they had on? They were earrings in the shape of a moon, a half moon, a crescent moon. What religious orientation can we think of today that has a symbol of a crescent moon associated with its religious ideology? Something to think about. But it goes on to tell us here, for they had golden earrings because they were what? They were Ishmaelites. So we see here then that a Midianite is an Ishmaelite. Now who was Ishmael? Ishmael was the son of Abraham through Hagar, his bondwoman. Sarah being barren, not having a child, and Abraham having been promised a son, she convinced Abraham to go into her handmaid and have a child so that they would be able to have posterity. And from Hagar was born Ishmael. And, of course, a whole realm of problems came about because of that desire to fulfill God's will fulfill his promise in man's strength. And so today we have a whole group of people who identify themselves as descendants of Ishmael. And that group today we will call Muslim or Islamic. So then, we see then that locusts equal Midianites, Midianites equal Ishmaelites, and you might as well say then they equal Muslims are those that are Islamic in faith. We have fulfilled rule number nine, the true meaning of figures. Trace your figurative word through your Bible and where you find it explained, put it on your figure, and if it makes good sense, you need to look no further. If not, look again. To me, it makes good sense. I hope it makes good sense to you. We do not need to look any further, but let's give a little bit more evidence. Let's look at a map, a map of the Holy Land, a map then, and we see down here towards the bottom of the Holy Land, Midian. Midian today would be the land of Saudi Arabia. But actually we see that the descendants of Ishmael, they inhabit all the way up through Jordan and Syria today, Palestine, Lebanon, even over into Egypt. So then, we see a perfect parallel between the Midianite and the Ishmaelite are those today that we refer to as Muslim or Islamic. Now, as we go forward, We've dealt with this first horsepower on our chart. What about the second horsepower? Well, on my chart, my original chart from the 1800s, you will see Turk underneath the horseman there. Turk. Or it has also been 
interpreted as Othman. What is an Othman, or what is a Turk? Othman Empire slash Turk historically was known in Western Europe as the Turkish Empire, or simply Turkey. It was a state that controlled much of Southeast Europe, Western Asia, North Africa, between the 14th and early 20th centuries, when Constantinople, as its capital and control of lands around the Mediterranean basis, the Othman Empire was at the center of interactions between the Eastern and Western worlds for six centuries. In Western Europe, the two names, Othman Empire and Turkey, were often used interchangeably, with Turkey being increasingly favored in both formal and informal situations. Islam was the official religion of the Othman Empire. Now, how big was this empire? Well, at one time we can see that pretty much the Othman Empire controlled almost all of Europe. You know, I didn't know some of these things when I was growing up because this is not history that I was taught. But now my wife, who is from Europe, Romanian, know, or knew and was taught this history quite well and understood this. Romania, where she's from, at one time was a part of this empire. Of course, it has shrunk tremendously today, but this is who we're talking about in our second horsepower on our chart. Remember, we're studying it like we would geography. We're using it like a map. So let's read a little bit about this in Revelation chapter 9. And we're going to look at a word in these verses that would give us another clue that we have to be talking about what we would understand today as being the Muslim or Islamic world. In verse 12, one woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army and the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jackneth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouth issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was a third part of men killed by fire and by smoke and by brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were likened to serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, Neither repented they of their murderers, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. Here, brothers and sisters, I'd like to focus on the river Euphrates. We are talking about a literal river, but what does it run through? Where does it originate? And if we look at this map, the river Euphrates here, this line of blue, originating in Turkey and then running right through the middle of the countries today that would make up the Islamic Muslim world on either side. Now, as we continue to study over the nights, we're going to see that waters in the Bible represent peoples. And so then, the river Euphrates is a fitting emblem 
of a representation of those that would be identified as Midianites, Ishmaelites, Muslims, or today what we'd understand is Islam. As we think about our rule, rule number seven in our ten rules, figures sometimes have two or more different significations. So then, the river Euphrates, running through the middle of the Middle East, would suggest that we're referring to the Islamic peoples here in Revelation chapter 9, verses 12 through 21. It would be safe to conclude that. Now, go with me to verse 14 again here. It says, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacknath and brimstone, and the heads of horses, as were the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by fire and by smoke and by brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. So far now, we have seen that these two woe trumpets deal with a power that today we would call Muslim. And the territory that they occupy right now and in their past, the ancestors, their past ancestors, occupy this territory as well. And as we're looking at these two woes, moving into the third woe, we see no definitive change in powers. And so then, we should be able to understand that the seventh trumpet or third woe would deal with Islam. But what further proof can we use to prove that we are dealing with Islam here? We just read these verses. Excuse me, Revelation 9.4 is what we're really going to look at here. But who succeeded Muhammad? A man named Abu Bakr. Who was he and how does he confirm this understanding? Abu Bakr succeeded Muhammad in 632 A.D. And von Krimner in his book, The Orient Under the Caliphs, wrote this. Abu Bakr, the successor and representative of the prophet in highest affairs of the Muslim community, was a simple man of the old Arabian fashion. And when summoned to the caliphate, he was changed in no respect. So what is a caliphate? Because this is becoming something more commonly heard today, the idea that there needs to be a caliphate again over the Islamic world. If you've been keeping up with the news at all about Turkey and Erdogan, Erdogan has a desire to become the caliph, the caliph over the Islamic world. Well, the way I would explain that in very simple terms is, as the Pope is to the papacy, so the caliph would be to the Muslim, would be the chief. It says here, his household remained as unrepentant as ever, as unpretentious, excuse me, as ever. He had only one slave who, after finishing the domestic work, made himself useful by cleaning the swords of the faithful. So now, in a speech that Abu Bakr gave before sending his armies out to fight, he makes this statement. He says, when you fight the battle of the Lord, acquit yourselves like men without turning your backs. But let not your victory be stained with the blood of women or children. Destroy no palm trees, nor burn any fields of corn. Cut down no fruit trees, nor do any mischief to cattle. 
Remember, as we read in Revelation 9, 4, it was commanded that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. Almost a direct parallel to that verse. It goes on to say, only such as you kill to eat. When you make any covenant or article, stand to it and be as good as your word. As you go on, you will find some religious persons who live retired in monasteries and propose to themselves to serve God that way. Let them alone. Don't bother those people. But it goes on to say, neither kill them nor destroy their monasteries. And then you will find another sort of people that belong to the synagogue of Satan who have shaven crowns. Be sure you cleave their skulls and give them no quarter till they turn Mohammedans or pay tribute. And this is taken from Gibbon's Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. But what is amazing is that we are told here in Revelation 9, 4, that they were to slay those that have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And so we see in the speech by Abu Bakr given to his Muslim armies before they went out to battle to basically do exactly what we see in Revelation 9, 4, almost verbatim. Now, as we continue to go over the next four nights, this case will be proven more clearly. Remember, we're only hitting the high points here. The final details will confirm the position, and we'll talk more about that later. But before we close tonight, let's explore one more aspect. Let's explore America in relation to this. If you go with me to Leviticus chapter 26, in Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26 verse 3, we're going to lay down the principle here. We see a parallelism. It says here in verse 3, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. And the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And ye shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land safely. And I will give you peace in the land. And ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put to ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. And ye shall eat old store and bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Now, when we think about America, and America being founded on Christian principles, we see this kind of prosperity the first 200 years of America. But something changes here in Leviticus 26. We're told in verse 14, what something that will happen if they forsake God. It says in verse 14, but if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments. And if ye despise, or if ye shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, the burning og that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and ye shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Remember what happened to the children of Israel when the Midianites came into the land? They dug caves and they hid themselves. And they had planted, but yet their substance was eaten up by the locusts. And so here we see the principle working itself out in Leviticus 26. 
that if a nation would depart from God, a nation especially that professes to be God's people, what would God allow to happen to them? He would allow for them to be under terror. Is that not what we're seeing today in America? And not only in America, but also in all the world. We're seeing terror. And the other aspect of it would be that the enemies would eat the substance. You know, if you think about it since 9-11, and pretty much everybody would have to say this, that the prosperity of America has dramatically changed since that day. It has been going down and continuing downward since that time. And who has it been that's been terrorizing not only America, but also the whole world? Well, it would be the Midianite or the Ishmaelite or what we refer to today as the Muslim or the Islamic world. We started as a Christian nation. We enjoyed peace and prosperity, but things have changed. Now, we're going to close tonight. We're just really getting started. As we continue the next four nights, we're going to see more and more how America fits into all this because we're going to talk about America and prophecy. We're also going to see how Israel fits into all this, and we're going to see more and more how Islam fits into all this. So we would also like to understand how the mark of the beast plays into this as well. So I'm going to encourage you to come back tomorrow night, and we'll pick this all back up again as we continue to lay a foundation for Islam, Israel, and America in Bible prophecy. And I'll close with prayer. Father, again, I come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I just thank you that your word will speak clearly to us. It will define these terms, these figures that can seem so obscure and so strange. We are just hitting high points, but I pray that you would open up our understanding. As we continue to build a foundation, I just ask that you would just give wisdom and knowledge from your scripture. And I thank you for your great love and mercy to us. As you have said, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. You want to wash your people, and you want to prepare your people to meet you. And I just pray that these meetings would help those that have listened tonight and those that will watch them to be prepared for your soon coming. And I thank you for your love and mercy to us, Jesus. And I pray all these things in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth. Pioneer Health and Missions.